If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again and ask for His aid and assistance. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have just heard that description of Your Word being sharper than any two-edged sword, able to penetrate into the inmost parts. Father, would You be pleased to use Your Word in the hand of Your Spirit to penetrate our hearts. Father, if they be cold, would you warn them? If they be hard, would you soften them? Father, faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. So Father, speak to your gathered people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I think we've all been on the giving end and receiving end of this kind of conversation. The child says to the parent, I want this. And the parent says, no, you don't want it. Or, uh, no, you're not going to get this. You may want it, but you don't need it. And you know the confusion between wants and needs, and parents have to help children especially be able to distinguish the difference between what I want and what I may really need. Now, some of us who are older... Uh, may think that we are beyond that, right? We're not just vocal demanding, this is what I want, but internally, don't we often do that? This is what I want. This is what I want. Well, in today's text is an instance when what the people heard in a sermon wasn't maybe what they wanted to hear, especially at first. But it was most definitely what they needed to hear. When it comes to the Bible, um, what's your approach? Are you coming to, um, to find what you want to find? Are you coming rather to find what you need to find? Are you looking for what you want? Or are you looking for what you need? It goes without saying, but it needs to be said. The Bible, God's Word, the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are what we need to hear. And the Holy Spirit, as He is in work in us, gives us a growing desire to want what we need to hear. So that what we want to hear and what we need to hear become one in the same. In fact, a good sign of the presence of faith, of the growth of faith, is you increasingly wanting to hear what you need to hear. Well, today is Easter Sunday, and churches all around the world, people are gathered, and in fact, you may have heard the news in Sri Lanka this morning, a number of churches were bombed. Hundreds of people, it sounds like, are, are dead on Easter Sunday. And I'm sure in most churches on Easter Sunday, there is a message of the resurrection being proclaimed. A special message. So shouldn't we stop our series in Acts and focus on the resurrection? Well, we're not going to stop, but we are going to focus. Now remember, 
Acts is written by Luke. It's volume 2 of Luke. If Luke is what Jesus began to do and teach, Acts is what Jesus continues to do and teach. It's how Jesus kept his promises to be with his church and to build his church through the personal presence and power of the Holy Spirit. You see, we've been looking at in these early verses of Acts, the promise and fulfillment of the Holy Spirit. Two weeks ago, it was the event of Pentecost in the first 13 verses of chapter 2. And last week, it was the explanation of Pentecost, verses 14 through 36. And today, it's the effect of Pentecost. Last week, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost we heard, and it is an Easter sermon. And in fact, it is what I would call the first Easter sermon. Remember his introduction. People were, were bewildered. They were astonished. They were amazed. Uh, and they didn't know what this meant. And so Peter told them what it meant. There was his sermon's introduction. And then he had two points. The Old Testament scriptures, primarily Joel. And then Jesus. Point one, Joel, promise. Point two, Jesus, fulfillment. And then his conclusion. And what dominated his sermon is the resurrection of Jesus. Look at chapter 2, verses 24 through 32. It's all about the resurrection of Jesus. It's central to his sermon. It is uh, the dominant theme, as it were. It is more time spent on the resurrection of Jesus. Now, on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching the word. And remember... The prophet Isaiah in chapter 55 speaks of the word of God being effective. It will accomplish its purposes. It will succeed in what is designed to do. So on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching the word. And also he's powered by the Holy Spirit. Remember Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. So This is Peter's first sermon where he is preaching the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what will be the effect of Peter's sermon, this first Easter sermon? Or will there be no noticeable effect? In other words, will someone come to a worship service on Easter Sunday, hear a message, and then go away and nothing Has changed. Well, what will be the effect? What will be the result, the outcome of the proclamation of the gospel here on the day of Pentecost? And as I was thinking about Peter proclaiming the resurrection of Christ, I also thought that in the second half of Acts, it's Paul. Remember, Acts can be divided in many ways, and one way is the ministry of Peter and the ministry of Paul. And what does Paul do in Athens? Chapter 17, he, he preaches Jesus and the resurrection. That was his message. It's Peter's message as well. So let's look at chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. And I'll begin by rereading verse 36. This is how he ends and concludes. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus Whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Well, in our text, which is the effect of this first Easter sermon on the day of Pentecost, we will see that when the word of God and the spirit of God are at work, three things are produced. A conviction of sin a confession of faith, and a congregation of believers. First, they produce a conviction of sin. We see that in verse 37. Peter's Pentecostal sermon is a proclamation of the gospel. Remember, he focuses on two historical events, the death and resurrection of Jesus. He appeals to two witnesses, the biblical witness, the prophets, the scriptures of the Old Testament, as it were, and the historical witness, the the apostles themselves. And Peter ends that sermon not with a call to become a better you or to find your best life now or 12 steps to a better life or what have you. No, his climax and conclusion, and notice this, is a statement. It's a statement. This Jesus... Whom you crucified. That's the one who has been, who's both Lord and Christ. In his sermon, you see, Peter contrasts what they did, crucifying Jesus, with what God did, raising him from the dead. Look at verse 23 you crucified and killed. But then in verse 24, But God raised him up. And that's the start of many verses on the resurrection. He ends, interestingly, not with a command. Not with go do this or do that. He ends with a bold declaration. A statement. That can be seen as this. You are wrong. You have sinned. You are murderers. Now, before the gospel can be received as good news, and kids, remember, gospel is good news. Before it can be received as good news, it first has to be understood and received as bad news. The narrative description beginning in verse 37 is, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Heard. They were listening. You know, a conversation has to be both ways, right? Someone is speaking and someone is listening. We've all been in conversations, right? When someone is speaking, but no one is listening. They heard, they were listening. They heard this. Well, what is this? Well, it can be seen as the whole sermon, but in specific, the climax about Jesus being the Lord and the Christ, the one they have killed. 
You see, the Holy Spirit has to empower Peter to proclaim Christ, to preach Christ. But the Holy Spirit also has to empower the listening, the hearing of the audience. Look at the number of times that Jesus would say, he who has ears, let him hear. Is there a difference between just having ears and hearing and listening? So when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Literally cut, it's used once in the New Testament here. It's literally stabbed, to be stabbed, to be pierced to the core of their being. The words came home. They're thinking probably, what you have just said about Jesus is true. He is Lord and Christ. And what you have said about us is true. We have sinned. We have killed Christ. And they're thinking probably, uh, we are in big trouble. We are not right with God. They are stunned and they are stung. But I want us to notice this. And this was extremely important to me and I think it will be for all of us. Notice that when they were cut to the heart, they didn't react in anger. I don't know about you, but my fleshly tendency is if I'm cut by what someone says, I'm going to try to cut back. But that's not what they did. What is their response? We're going to see that in just a moment. And the point is this. Conviction of sin does not have to be loud and outward. It can be quiet and inward. I think in America, uh, we're still feeling the effects of um, kind of several aspects of evangelism that say, you know, you've got to know the day and the time that you came to faith. And it's got to be a dramatic conversion because we put people on pedestals and say, can you tell us your testimony? And we get the idea that coming to faith in Christ has to be loud and outward. For those of you children growing up in the church, may it be that in all honesty and integrity, you can say, I've never known a day apart from trusting in Christ alone for salvation. So conviction of sin does not have to be loud and outward. It can be quiet and inward. And so what do they do? They ask a question. And it's a very good question to ask. They say, what shall we do? You know, Peter or Luke could have recorded something that they didn't say. Like they screamed, they, they jumped up and down, they wailed, they tore their... Um, their, uh, what they were wearing. No, they ask a question. And they move from this request for information in verse 12, what does this mean, to now a request for counsel, for direction, for guidance. Now, what do people think they need to do when they find themselves weighed down by the guilt of sin? I think there are a couple of common responses. One is to work it off. Just work harder. Try harder. Promise not to do it again. To work, work it off. 
And other people tend to blow it off, to ignore it, to hide it, to, to, to see if you can forget about it. But you know, Jesus was asked a good question in his ministry as well, and we read that in John 6. The people around him said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Another great question. What must we do? And Jesus' response was this. This is the work of God. Hear this. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. They're asking, what do I do? And Jesus says, believe in Me. So, let me ask you this before we move on. Uh, when you, and I trust all of us, are often confronted by God's word and convicted of our sin, what do you do in response? Do you try to work it off or do you blow it off? Or do you address it head on? Here they are being convicted of sin, convinced of the truth about God and the truth about man. Remember Jesus' opening words in the Gospel of Mark, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Remember that one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit that Jesus tells His apostles in, in John 16 is this, when the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You see, what Jesus has said would happen is happening. So when the Word of God and the Spirit of God are at work, sin is shown for what it is, rebellion against the rule of a great and good God. A conviction of sin leads to a confession of faith. Those who are convicted of their sin will, in due time, in short order, confess their faith. And so here we see in this response a confession of faith. Well, where's the confession of faith? Remember, we just looked at the Apostles' Creed, a creed, a statement of what we believe. Well, where is their statement? Well, look down at verse 41. So those who received His Word, received His Word. And look down to verse 44 that we'll look at next week. And all who believed, they've confessed their faith, they've acknowledged that they believe. Well, let's listen now to back up and listen to Peter's answer to their question of what to do. What does Peter say? Repent and believe. No, he says, repent and be baptized. And we'll see that be baptized is going to be an aspect of, of making that faith visible. You see, Peter recalls what is recorded in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 45. Remember, Jesus, after his resurrection, is with his disciples and he says, we read in Luke 24, Then, that is Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Isn't it wonderful to see 
what Jesus said is to happen at the end of Luke 24 show up already in the early part of Acts. Earlier in his sermon, Peter in verse 21 refers to those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, as he quotes Joel. Well, he's expanding on what it means to call on the name of the Lord, repent and believe. Let's look at repentance. It's an echo of John the Baptist. It's, it's, a, um, it's Jesus saying, repent and believe. Repent. Translated from the Greek, it's a change of mind. From the Hebrew, it's a change of direction. And you put those two together and it's a complete change of mind so that the entire direction of your life is changed. Kids, it's a 180. You were going in this direction, repentance turns you around. You turn around in repentance and head the other direction. You turn here from opposing Jesus to becoming an ally of Jesus. It's a fundamental, radical change. And when you say radical, it's not necessarily flashy, flashy, outward, visible, but it's radical, meaning to the root. It's at the core of who you are. Repent and believe, two sides of the same coin. You'll see even in Acts, sometimes the call is just to repent. Sometimes it's just to believe. Sometimes it's repent and believe. It's one implies the other. It's two sides of the same coin, two wings of the airplane that are needed so it can fly. Our catechism asks the question, what is repentance unto life? And this is the answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. So you're grasping both your sin, and the mercy of God in Christ. And there is a turn. John Stott, in his magnificent work, The Cross of Christ, says this, Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us leading to repentance. Indeed, only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. So before we see the cross being for us, that leads us to worship, we need to first see the cross as something done by us that leads us to repentance. And that's what's happening to those gathered in Jerusalem. Jews from every nation there listening to Peter preach. Repent, he says, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Be baptized, a, a, a visible expression of an inward reality. And it's a remarkable thing to ask of the Jews because the Jews of that day would say, oh no, it's only Gentiles they're dirty and unclean. It's only them who have to undergo baptism. And no, Peter is saying, no, you need to identify with Jesus through 
baptism. In the name of Jesus Christ, it's not going against what Jesus says in the Great Commission of Matthew 28. It's just what's being emphasized here because they're being baptized in the name of the one they had rejected. It's a public identification with and allegiance to Jesus. Baptism, as we know, pictures, among other things, the forgiveness of sin. It portrays washing, signifies what repentance produces, cleansing, as we read in Titus. Now there, of course, is some disagreement on the proper recipients of baptism. But whether you're a credo-baptist or a paedo-baptist, we both agree that baptism is important. And as I think we'll see, we're going to hear something that lends it that baptism is to be applied to the children of believers as well. So repentance and faith lead to the receiving of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. Receive the forgiveness of sins happening to us from the outside. A legal declaration, even the sin of rejecting Jesus. Forgiveness is offered. And receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, something that happens on the inside of us. It's not legal, it's familial. There's new life and new power on the inside. And we read, continuing, For the promise is for you and your children. The promise. Well, the promise of of, of the Holy Spirit coming in, in a narrow sense. But in a broader sense, the promise of forgiveness, that a Redeemer will come, as we see all the way back in Genesis 3. There's the promise of pardon and forgiveness. There's the promise of power and the Holy Spirit. And notice the extent of this promise. You, your children, those far off, all of those, everyone whom the Lord will call. I want us to remember back when we went through Galatians and hear these words from Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, back in Genesis 12 15 and 17, God calls Abram, changes his name to Abraham, gives him a promise. And that promise was not just to Abraham, but to his offspring, culminating in Christ. And our union with Christ then gives us the benefits of that promise. God makes a covenant with Abraham and his offspring, the promise. So a conviction of sin and a confession of faith operate and work together to create something. It just doesn't stop. They work together to build something. They work together to build a congregation of Christians, of believers. In other words, the church. Believers. Again, look at verse 41. Those who received his word, received the word, received Christ. Remember John 1. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, receiving Christ means believing Christ. And notice, 
He goes on to speak. Uh, Luke says he's talking, he's bearing witness, exhorting them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. My friends, here is the Jerusalem church plant. It starts with 120, and in one day there is explosive growth through an evangelistic sermon. So the church expands 26 times, 26 yeah, times in, in one day to 3,000 plus. And it illustrates Jesus' promise to his apostles that they will do greater works. In John 14, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Jesus says, I'm going to the Father. The Holy Spirit will come. And look what Holy Spirit-powered preaching brings. Conviction of sin. Confession of faith. And it's going to build the church. You see, believers are those people called out from the world. This crooked generation. That's how Peter's describing the generation that put Jesus to death. But now a choice can be made. We see that in Hebrews 4, speaking of the Old Testament believers or those who identified as Israelites and yet in the wilderness they weren't united by faith. So Peter is is saying a choice has got to be made. Uh, Go with the flow of society or join the real counterculture. Be countercultural. Hey kids, have you all ever been to one of those water parks that has a lazy river? Yeah, I like lazy rivers, right? Because all you do is get on that float, right? And do what? You just float, right? That's how a lot of us, I think, tend to view the Christian life. Just hop on the raft, the float, the inner tube, and just lazily float down. But the Christian life is more like uh, Michael Phelps. Anybody know who Michael Phelps is? An Olympic gold medal swimmer, right? Do you think Phelps likes the lazy river? No. He's going to swim against the current. Why? To get stronger. The Christian is called out from the world, but the Christian is called into the church. You see, as we will see next week, there's a great description of the church being a loving, learning, worshiping, and witnessing community. Because Acts will provide to all uh, will provide the background to all of the letters of the churches, letters sent to explain the person and work of church, and thus who the church is and what the church does. Well, what effect did, the, did Peter's sermon, the one that has, has as its center the resurrection, um, what effect did it have on many of those in the audience? Well, we've seen when the Word of God and the Spirit of God are at work, They produce a conviction of sin, a confession of faith, and a congregation of believers. What a day. What a day. I mean, Resurrection Day, absolutely. What a day. We've sung about it. We're going to sing about it some more. But the day of Pentecost, what a day. There was panicked internal conviction to glad acceptance. It was a day of amazing grace. 
Well, what about us? Not in Jerusalem in the first century, but here in Florence, Kentucky in 2019. Well, in view of this response to the first Easter sermon, here are just a few final words about the gospel, the Christian life, and the church. First, the gospel. The gospel may not be what we want to hear, especially at first, but it's what we need to hear. And those who have received the gospel, who have believed, will find that they want to hear it over and over and over again. Well, why is the gospel sometimes not wanted? Because what are we supposed to do? Repent and believe. You know how hard it is to say you're wrong. You know how hard it is to say I have sinned. You see, the gospel is not just something simply to be discussed. It's a message that demands a response. The gospel of the risen Lord Jesus Christ demands a response. Peter preaches the gospel And what do they say? What must we do? What shall we do? You see, no one can claim neutrality when it comes to the gospel. It either softens you or hardens you. You either love it or you hate it. But yet the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. First for the Jew, then the Gentile. And the Christian life, how does it begin? How does it continue? Through repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Interestingly, author of Hebrews says that whenever we turn away from Christ, we are, quote, crucifying once again the Son of God to our own heart, uh, to, our, to our own hard hearts and holding Him up to contempt. I mean, in a real way, Every time we sin, it's as if we're putting Jesus back on the cross. And what do you do? What do you do? You do what you did at the beginning. You turn from it. You confess it. You repent. And you believe. You believe the promise of forgiveness. It's the two-cycle engine of the Christian life, repentance and faith. It never ends. And finally, the church, corporate. Here we see the beginning. God's people have been there from the beginning, but here is the Spirit-filled people of God, the church, where God is gathering and perfecting the saints. Those people called out as well as called in. So as we end, how should you respond to an Easter sermon, a message about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How should you respond A message that declares in no uncertain terms that the one who was crucified is the one who has been raised from the dead for us and for our salvation. Ask yourself how you're responding to the good news of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. The offer of salvation found in him. Are you having trouble responding? If you would, turn with me in your hymnals to hymn 472.
As you're turning to hymn 472, I want to provide just a brief background. This hymn was written in 1759 by an English minister named Joseph Hart. And on his tombstone, and he died in 1768, and on his tombstone are written these words. Joseph Hart was by the free and sovereign grace and spirit of God raised up from the depths of sin and delivered from the bonds of mere profession and self-righteousness and led to rest entirely for salvation in the finished atonement and perfect obedience of Christ. You want to know how to respond to a sermon, an Easter sermon, where the the resurrection is central, listen to these words. This hymn provides a great roadmap of a response. Come, you sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. He is willing Doubt no more. That's the message Peter is proclaiming. Come ye needy, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh. Without money, without money, without money. Come to Jesus Christ and buy. Come to Jesus Christ and buy. Come ye weary. Are are any of y'all weary? Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. Sinners, Jesus came to call. And as I read verses 4 and 5, think about the scene on the day of Pentecost. Let not conscience make you linger nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. And then finally, lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood, venture on him, venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good, can do helpless sinners good. My friends, Peter on the day of Pentecost is saying, you guys are helpless sinners and only Jesus can do what you need done. Turn from your sin. Turn to Him in faith. May God be pleased to give all of us here a growing desire to want to hear what we need to hear as faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and promised return of Jesus. Father, all of us 
are working feverishly at times to make ourselves right with you. But Father, we can't do that. We have to lean wholly on Jesus, his life of perfect obedience in our place and on our behalf, and his sacrificial death on the cross in our place and on our behalf. Oh, Father, would you give us a growing hunger to hear the truth of the gospel over and over and over again. Father, thank you for Jesus. He is the only one who can do helpless sinners like us any good. Let's venture on him with our whole lives. We pray in his name. Amen. Respond.